flow. Please give us two like shooting free throws. West to the south, no shooting. Please know when the C H I C H G O E. This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. What if I were to tell you there is a product that contributes to equatorial tropical deforestation, which threatens biodiversity, releases viruses that can cause pandemics, and greatly contributes to CO2 emissions that cause climate change, a product that you use and consume every day, but is rarely, if ever, discussed in the media or anywhere for that matter. And what if I told you the reason it's rarely brought up in the media is because if it is, those reporting on the product and how it's produced often face threats and intimidation from the very powerful industry. And as our guest today reports, those kinds of an intimidating tactics should come as no surprise when you consider the corruption and exploitation that is rife through the industry, both today and throughout its brutal history. Worse yet, the amount of this resource being produced and the swaths of forests being burned, releasing unknown viruses, warming the planet and destroying biodiversity to cultivate it is growing at a massive and alarming rate with no end in sight other than the end of the planet earth as we know it problem is if we stop using this product entirely developing economies and the most marginalized peoples will be the ones who suffer the most we'll consider the many contradictions of palm oil in a few when we speak with environmental writer and editor jocelyn c zuckerman author of Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Jocelyn is the former deputy editor of Gourmet, articles editor of On Earth, and executive editor of Modern Farmer. Jocelyn is a former fellow with the Washington, D.C.-based Alicia Patterson Foundation. And you can find out more about Jocelyn by going to jocelynczuckerman.com. And you can follow Jocelyn on Twitter at Jocelyn Zuck. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Egon Sheely. Anything new by you, Egon? How is your dog doing? Oh, my dog is doing wonderful. Um, had one of those lovely nights, you know, was a good boy, didn't drink, went to bed early, and then I, you know, just had nightmares all night. So. Oh, sweet. See, that's why you should be drinking before you go to bed. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, self-medication is... is you know, that's why they call it that, I think. I think so, too. So what is your dog's name? Jupiter, Saturn, Alex couldn't remember. Uh, Pluto. Pluto. Pluto, Pluto the void dog. <laughs> she is uh, a black chow chow. So it's like if you try and take a photograph of her, she's just the, the black hole in the photograph, you know? <laughs> Very nice. So yesterday I mentioned at the end of the show that a recent guest, despite being completely vaccinated, has COVID-19. Sociologist Caitlin Schroering, who was on the show last month to talk about her Roar Magazine article, Inside the Struggle for Water Sovereignty in Brazil, has caught the virus again, despite having gone through the entire inoculation process. After getting permission from Caitlin to read this on air, here's what she posted online. Caitlin starts by saying, 
I've been deliberating for a few days on if I should share this and what to say, but I decided that I need to and I want to. I have COVID-19. I'm also double vaccinated, second dose early April. Mine was in mid-April, so now I'm freaking out. With the Pfizer vaccine, mine was also the Pfizer vaccine, so now I'm doubly freaking out. I also know that the vaccine works at preventing most infection and works very well at preventing serious disease and very, very well at preventing death. If you are reading this and have access to a vaccine, the fact that most of the world doesn't is a huge injustice and crime. Please get vaccinated. Please also continue to wear a mask, even if vaccinated, and even though the CDC says we don't need to. We have low vaccine rates in much of the United States and vaccine apartheid in most of the world. We are all in this together and we got to keep protecting each other because our governments sure as hell are not. I've been very cautious, continuing to mask inside grocery stores, etc. Outside, if in a crowded space, and only recently starting to see a few vaccinated friends unmasked. After two years of not seeing them, I flew to Florida to see my parents. We went out to eat once outside, and we went to two not-crowded museums wearing masks. But basically, no one else around us was masking, and of course, the whole my mask protects you, yours protects me idea means that I was less protected. I wore an N95 mask on the plane, not even removing it to take a sip of water. My initial symptoms were a very strange nasal drainage and very watery eyes, first just the left side, then the right. Then I felt better, decided to test, took several days to come back, but was positive. Other symptoms that developed were severe fatigue and a change, not loss of taste. Carrots taste like licorice suddenly. No cough or fever, so please mask and avoid large crowds. Get vaccinated if you have access and haven't already, and assume any cold or allergy-like symptoms could be COVID. And also, we should all be advocating and pushing to drop patents and make the vaccine available to all in the whole world. The Delta variant is incredibly contagious. Vaccinated people are catching it, but 99% of people in ICU beds dying from it aren't vaccinated. Thanks for reading. Lots of love and solidarity to all. Again, this is not me telling you to get vaccinated, but sociologist Caitlin Schroering, who wrote the Aurora Magazine article on water sovereignty in Brazil that we featured in June, an interview you can hear right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Schroering. That's S-C-H-R-O-E-R-I-N-G. If you'd like to send your well wishes to Caitlin, find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash Caitlin Schroering. The vaccine has only received emergency authorization, so it has not been as thoroughly vetted as pharmaceuticals usually are before being authorized for use by the FDA. I am fully vaccinated, but I also understand hesitancy because of the U.S. government's sordid history of using humans as guinea pigs for its science experiments and its complicity with the pharmaceutical industry more generally. However, I have not had COVID-19 yet. I thought I did, I got tested, but I did not get COVID-19. By now, five-week-old Cole, cold, happy anniversary, five-week-old Cole, cold, seems to be dissipating, but it sounds like nothing compared to what Caitlin is going through. But I really did think that this five-week-old cold was COVID, although it still goes on. I'm still coughing up my lungs every morning. It's pretty disgusting. 
But Caitlin has far more experience with COVID personally. So if I were you, I'd take Caitlin's advice. But more importantly than any of that, Egon, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on this show on the on our 50th anniversary in 2046? <laughs> what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046, having just celebrated our 25th year on air at WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment? The person with our favorite answer to this week's Question Hell wins your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can find all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell following our conversation with Jocelyn. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff in the mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. We also mentioned on yesterday's show how we got another print in the mail from the talented printers at the self-described conservative anarchist Kennedy Printing in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood of Detroit. In the past, they told us in a letter that they are a conservative anarchist print shop, so keep that in mind when I tell you what it says on this absolutely stunning 6 by 8 inch print. The quote attributed to DeForest Suarez, and I'll tell you who he is in a moment. The quote with the words stop voter suppression in the background says democracy means that you have the right to vote without intimidation and undue burdens. Democracy means that you have the right to vote without intimidation and undue burdens. Again, in that letter they sent, Kennedy Printing did say they were a conservative anarchist print shop, and as everyone who I showed that print to at this past Saturday's Jeff Dorchin performance downstairs, that's probably a reflection of conservative anarchism. So now we are getting a better understanding of what conservative anarchism means, I guess. So our deep gratitude once again goes out to Kennedy Printing and especially Mimi Machete. As to who DeForest Suarez is, Reverend DeForest Blake Buster Suarez Jr. is an African-American Baptist minister, author, and public advocate from Montclair, New Jersey. He is the former Secretary of State of New Jersey and former chairman of the Federal Election Assistance Commission, which explains his advocacy for voter accessibility and might enlighten us a little bit more as to what conservative anarchism is. We also got a couple of emails all about Maine, and we'll be sharing those in just a little bit. You can email us again at chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio, message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or just send us stuff in the actual mail to thisishell2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you do any of those things, we'll more than likely share your thoughts on air. Coming up, the dangers of quickly expanding palm oil industry. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are we going to be talking about on the 
show on our 50th anniversary in 2046. What are we going to be talking about on the show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? You can leave your answer at Facebook, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. Egon will also be telling us who is on the rest of this week's show, and I'll be sharing you the, with you those emails that we got on Maine. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Near the equator, massive tropical deforestation is taking place. This is bad for us as those forests, often called the lungs of the world, take in climate change causing carbon dioxide while releasing life-giving oxygen. So why would anyone want to damage the planet's lungs? Because there's a fortune to be made in palm oil. Developing economies need something to develop their economies on, and people need jobs. Here to help us understand the palm oil boom and what it means for all of us, who consume palm oil every day, whether we know it or not. Environmental writer and editor Jocelyn C. Zuckerman is author of Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jocelyn. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. You describe how you were in a remote corner of southeastern Liberia, staring out the window of a land cruiser in a landscape rendered entirely in burnt orange. Just a few weeks earlier, this place had been dense forest, raucous with chirps and squawks of birds, the scratching of animals in the underbrush. Clear streams had trickled over rocks. For generations, the families in this pocket of the Western African nation founded by freed Af American slaves had collected uh, rattan from the forest for building their houses and furniture. The men had returned in the evenings bearing honey, crabs, and groundhogs. Women, their, in, their infants tethered to their backs, had bent over plots of yams, melons, and beans, and clearings by their huts. All that remained of such time-honored tableaus. Now were the thousands of dead trees laid at intervals along the endless expanse of dirt. The destruction in both its scope and its finality was like nothing I'd ever seen. Keeping in mind, this is a country, as you point out, where freedom American slaves took refuge, only to be victimized by U.S. colonialism. How quickly can deforestation driven by palm production happen? How fast can it wipe out centuries, if not millennia, of cultural practices? Um, pretty quickly. I mean, as I said, when I, when I was driving through there, it was, you know, the, it was just in the, in the last couple of weeks that they'd come through and raised, you know, miles and miles. Um, I read a report yesterday, it came out last week from a, um, an NGO called Emergent um, that was with some partners, including um, the United Nations Environmental Program that found that an area of tropical forests the size of New York Central Park is cleared every 15 minutes. So that's pretty quick. <laughs> that's very, very quick and really surprising. I mean, that's, that's not all for palm oil, mind you. You know, a lot of that's for soy, too. But um, as you said, these tropical rainforests are, are the lungs of the world. They're like the most crucial habitat that we have. They are the mo most crucial habitat we have and the most that's in danger and threatened right now, especially by, as you point out, the palm oil production. You write how you had gone to Liberia to report a story about land grabs or large scale territorial acquisitions by outsiders, the phenomenon which had come to the world's attention in the aftermath of the financial and food crises of 2008 entails investment banks, pension funds, land poor countries, and agribusiness seizing vast swaths of fertile ground in places like Ethiopia and Madagascar, places where traditional land rights are easy to exploit. How important are land grabs to palm production? Does it depend upon the practice of dispossessing land? Uh, 
Um, yeah, I would say it does. I mean, it's not always the, the same situation. Often, as in Liberia, these were um, companies that were based in other countries, in this case, in Malaysia and in um, Singapore, that had come in and made these deals with the government to um, to clear the rainforest and cultivate palm oil. But in places like Indonesia um, and other places, a lot of that involves the, the Indonesian government and, and local um, corrupt officials who are stealing land out from the often indigenous people who live there. So it's not it, it's not always outsiders coming in. Um, it's co- sort of coming from all angles. But it, in what way are the people who are there involved in it? Do these, uh, I mean, are they involved in the government negotiations? Do these uh, companies just show up out of the blue and start tearing down their villages, their towns, and tearing down where they live? Um, I mean, as the, in Liberia, the case was, you know, the government was certainly involved. The then President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf had, had signed these concession agreements. And in fact, um, so I visited two different communities in two different parts of the country where there are these concession agreements have been signed. One, um, as you described, they had just cleared the land and they hadn't done much planting yet. And then the other part up north of the capital, Monrovia, they've been in operation for a couple of years. So there, there were already these young trees. Um, and that community was protesting that their rivers had been polluted, that they had just horrible wages, um, lots of other abuses. And and the president showed up when they were there protesting and said, you know, what right do you have getting in the way of, you know, this income generating scheme that I'm, I'm trying to work for the country? Um, so, yeah, basically the, the government often, um, you know, signs these agreements and often the either the at the national level or at the more local level or both there's sort of corruption involved in officials you know maybe maybe a chief of a community saying oh yeah the community's fine with that with you taking this land um and then when the when the folks actually living on the land try to speak up and say actually we we never signed on for this um we were we were told a different story about what's going to happen they're sort of told to to shut up and um just you know mind their business and not um jeopardize the income from these these concessions. So how much can this lead to domestic political instability from protests about these oil palm production sites? Oh, it's led to it um, in lots of places. So in Liberia, in fact, there's that that one company has since left the country because the, um, the community rallied so much and said, we do not want this palm oil development. Um, in Indonesia, there were protests last year um, that, that involved sort of various issues um, of governance, but a lot of it was, you know, that there are these fires on the land where they're clearing it for palm oil and that, um, you know, other environmental ills that the the local populations are perceiving that, you know, they're opposed to. Um, so in lots of countries, in, in Cameroon, there's been fights against uh, the palm, palm oil company um, pretty much everywhere where there are there, there are protests. Um, you know, whether on the local level or, or the national level. This week, there was a front page story in the New York Times about Nigeria and the lingering legacy of colonialism and the uprisings against oil production that are happening there. To you, what explains why these uh, these uprisings, these protests when it comes to palm oil are not getting the kind of attention, the front page New York Times kind of attention that Nigeria and oil exploitation is getting? 
It's such an interesting story. Um, as I mentioned in my book, so the palm oil industry actually had its roots right there in the Niger Delta, and they called it the oil rivers, referring to palm oil. And now the Niger Delta is, as I say in the book, ground zero for a different kind of oil. Um, and that I read that story too. It's It was so disturbing to me. Um, I also read a novel recently, um, How Beautiful We Were, which is it doesn't say where it's at, but the writer is Cameroon, and it's sort of a, a very similar story about an, um, a petroleum company coming in and, you know, poisoning the groundwater, all of the people getting sick um, in order to take this oil out. And reading that that article and this book, I thought this you could just substitute in a palm oil company for these, you know, for Chevron or Shell or Exxon, whichever company they're talking about. It's so similar, the, um, you know, the dispossession of the locals and... The companies then just sort of, you know, reaping in um, billions in profits and none of that trickling down um, to the communities, which at the same time are being poisoned by agrochemicals or fumes or polluted fish and everything else. You quote a 53-year-old woman telling you through tears, we can't plant plantains, we can't plant rice, we can't plant peppers. You explain how the people who had ripped out her crops to replace them with oil palm had given the woman a one-time payment of only a few hundred dollars. Could the woman farmer you spoke with have said no to selling her land? And what would have happened if she had said no? Um, I don't think she could because the government was behind it. I don't know if they were sort of, you know, that claiming that this is in the public good. So the sort of, you know, the, the individual rights are superseded by the whatever the government deems is is better at the, you know, for the for the national good. And you cite a Monrovia based lawyer advocating for the locals and lamenting the community members loss of identity, saying the guy who was a respected farmer has now become a slave laborer. How aware is the Liberian government or multinational corporations that they are destroying communities' identities while making them vulnerable to further exploitation? Oh, I think they're perfectly aware of it. Um, and that was part of my reason for writing this book was to, you know, let the rest of the world know, those of us who are consuming palm oil every day and have no idea um, about, you know, how, how people on the other end are, are being impacted. Um, and the idea that only if we raise our voices to these companies and then, you know, in turn, the, the governments where these companies are operating is, will there be a change? Um, now, as you said in your intro, the, you know, I'm, I'm well aware that um, many of these countries are, are not wealthy and that a lot of jobs are invested in this industry. And that's why I sort of at, at the end of the book, when I talk about solutions, um, make the point that, you know, we wealthier Western countries have to, um, you know, have to do our part. If we want to keep these tropical rainforests standing, we need to help these governments um, figure out how to transition away from this um, hurtful, on many levels, um, commodity. You point out that you have had had experience living in Africa in the past, and you write uh, that you were there while in the Peace Corps for 27 months. As someone who is an outsider still, how would you describe the life that is lost when palm oil companies tear down forests and tear up communities? How difficult do you think it is to find that life somewhere else or to rebuild that community? I mean, it's getting harder and harder as more land is is taken up for, um, you know, different commodities. Um, but yeah, the, the cultures are being destroyed. I mean, in, in Indonesia, I spent time with... Um, 
some indigenous communities and they talked about how, you know, the, the, the fathers and sons would go out hunting and the women would pass down to their daughters how to do basket making and how to, you know, cook with all these local roots and things that they gathered from the forest. Um, and without a forest, it was just like, and, and all their traditions, even ceremonies, you know, are all around the, the forest in which they've lived, you know, for thousands of years um, sustainably. So when you knock down the forest, all of that goes, including the healthful diets that they source from them. You know, now, now they're subsisting on um, government issue rice or um, instant noodles that they can buy at the little local shop, um, which themselves are something like 20% palm oil. So is this a war then on indigenous culture? And does that kind of targeting of these areas that are informed by and actually house an indigenous culture, does that lead to racism? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's not it's not just indigenous cultures. Um, in many places it is, including in, in places like um, Guatemala and Honduras, where the industry has also gone in, and in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, Cameroon, other places. Um, I think, yeah, they've always been marginalized and tend to be still by by the governments that are in place in these different countries. Um, the other thing, probably um, just as important, is that there have been several reports, particularly in the last couple of months, when people are sort of really looking at how how we conserve our forests in, in the face of um, horrific climate change um, fallout. Um, and so there have been numerous studies finding that indigenous peoples and local communities are the best, by far the best stewards of tropical forests. Um, you know, as I said, they've lived there for thousands of years sustainably. You know, they, they don't just cut them down and they then they've got this wisdom passed down over ancestries, even in terms of sort of, you know, setting fires to clear small areas, knowing, knowing how to do that in a way that there will be regrowth. Um, so I think, you know, tapping into that wisdom will be key to basically saving our, our planet. Um, and I, I know with these studies coming out, I think there, there are a lot of um, international efforts now um, to help finance governments that are over, you know, that are home to these, um, the countries that are home to these tropical rainforests and included in that financing, helping them to, um, to put in place indigenous land rights, because part of the problem is that these folks, you know, though they've, though they've lived, lived there for generations, they don't have a piece of paper that says this is our They, oh, oh, sorry, you know, you don't have a piece of paper, so we're just going to kick you off and, and sell this to the highest bidder. Um, so part of sort of saving our forests and saving our planet um, will be uh, helping governments to establish these indigenous land rights so that they can stay on their land and, and keep conserving them the way they were doing. A lot of these practices sound exactly like colonialism. You know, we're supposedly living in a post-colonial time. To what extent do you see colonial practices being implemented by these oil palm producers? Um, you know, it's a plantation system, basically. The, you know, you want economies of scale, so that's why they just clear massive amounts of lands. And um, so a plantation system, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's basically colonialism, right? You've got a huge... Um, huge piece of land with with one or two owners and lots of people working it for you know 
slave wages. So what was before palm oil? What is palm oil replacing? What is it a substitute for? Because you talk about how this has exploded only over the last 50 years, 40 years. There's been a huge uh, uptick in the amount of production of palm oil. What is it replacing? Well, that's part of the argument that I make in the book, because a lot of people say, particularly the palm oil industry says, oh, you can't replace palm oil because um, then you're going to need to clear more land, you know, in order to grow different kind of oils. Well, the point is, we don't need this much oil. We never had this much oil um, in the global diet. Here, I've got a stat for you. Um, between 1961 and 2009, the availability of palm oil worldwide went up 206 percent. Over the same period, the availability of sugars and sweeteners increased by 20%. So, you know, you always hear that sugar's the reason that we've all gotten fat and there's so much obesity and diabetes. But in fact, the the increase in the global diet of vegetable oil is far, far bigger than that of sugar. And most of it, so 75% of the global production of palm oil goes to food. Um, And it's mostly processed foods made by the likes of, you know, PepsiCo and... Unilever and Grupo Bimbo. I mean, it's it's garbage food so, that we don't need to begin with. Um, otherwise, it's also used particularly in in poor countries for lots of um, deep frying. Also, you know, not not particularly healthy. And the thing about palm oil is it's fifty percent saturated fat, so it's like among the well, it's probably the the least healthy oil. Um, and you know, as I said, it's it's being used um, to. to in, to fry things in or going into um, cheap processed foods. And you point out that in the past 15 years alone, imports to this country have risen a whopping, to the United States, have risen a whopping 263%, thanks in part to the FDA's ban on trans fats. Trans fats are considered the worst kinds of fats you can eat. The question then would be, what is worse for public health, You know, both human and environmental, palm oil or trans fats? But I guess more importantly, do we need either? Can we survive without any hydrogenated oils whatsoever? Why are they so important to the food industry? Well, they're so cheap. They're just a cheap filler. <laughs> Excuse me. So yeah, that is that, that is a point. Um, I'm glad you brought it up about the trans fat. So trans fat, I spoke with um, Barry Popkin. Your listeners might be familiar with that name. He's quoted in a lot of the New York Times stories about food. He's a professor at um, the University of North Carolina and has written books and done studies over the year on sort of the changing um, global, how global food supply has changed over the years and how that's impacts diets. And he said to me, yeah, um, trans fats are probably worse for you than, than palm oil at being 50% fat, but um, 50% saturated fat. But he said, but there's so much palm oil in the global diet that in the end, I would argue that that palm oil is worse because you're just getting so much of this stuff. How much is it needed for distribution, for traveling, for globalization? How much is palm oil necessary for us to be able to have whatever food we want whenever we want it throughout the year? I mean, I think I'd, I'd put it with all the other foods that we can now walk into the grocery store and get, you know, whatever time of year. Um, as I said, part of, part of what is attractive to industry to the food industry about palm oil is it does help with shelf stabilization so because it's 50 percent saturated fat it's semi-solid at room temperature unlike liquid oils that as you said have to be hydrogenated have to have hydrogen added to to make them um semi-solid and help with sort of the the mouthfeel and stability of foods like cookies and (coughs) chocolate bars and other things um so yeah it's it's good for industry it's also 
Um, we can go back and talk about sort of the palm oil, the oil palm fruit itself. Um, so it's these these palm oil trees. They look like a like a palm oil a, a palm tree that you would see, you know, on vacation with those big frond, a, a tall trunk and those big fronds. But instead of coconuts under there, there are these big bunches. They're probably about um, two in, two feet in diameter, um, and they've got this sort of spiky brown stuff. And inside, there are hundreds of these little. They're the the tree itself is called the oil palm. So these are oil palm fruits. They're about the size of a plum. So we have like an elongated plum, shiny orange um, skin and flesh. And then inside that, there's a white kernel. And so um, from this fruit, you get the, the palm oil from that orange flesh. And then you also get a different oil from the kernel. That's called palm kernel oil. And that's 80% um, saturated fat. Um, that tends to be used sort of in, in baking because it's much, much harder for sort of decorations on top of cakes and things. And also it's used a lot in like personal care products. Um, makeup and things. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, oh, so over the years, I'm trying to figure out what, what question I was answering. Um, anyway, so this, this palm oil, um, it's, to, it's native to West and Central Africa. It's for, for generations, it's been a, a pillar of cuisine there and of culture. Um, and they, if your listeners have had sort of, you know, maybe Nigerian food or, or food from elsewhere, or now from Brazil, where it's called dende, um, they would, remember this, this sort of bright orange, very oily um, substance. But over the years, the industry has, has learned how to process it in such a way. So they bleach it, they deodorize it, and RBD, refine, bleach, deodorize. And they, they come up with this oil that's basically um, tasteless. It's, um, it's clear or white when it's solid. Um, so they can just sort of slide it into anything at this point. Um, so anyway, going back to why it's important in globalization, it's sort of a, um, like a flex, a flex crop. They've processed it to such a degree that um, you can really sort of stick it into any sort of foods or um, various oleochemical um, applications. So yeah, it's really useful stuff. I mean, I, it cannot be denied. And you point out that in its unrefined form, palm oil is an excellent source of vitamins A and B. So it's good for you and the plants are highly productive and natural because they're renewable. So does that make them necessarily sustainable? Is this a sustainable process? And do we get the good palm oil that is rich with vitamins A and E? You can get it. There's a brand, a brand called um, Nutiva, which you can find like in Whole Foods and probably other sort of natural leaning. Um, and you see that that's that sort of bright orange oil. Um, the the thing is, as I said, most of the stuff we're, we're eating, I would say 95% that Americans are ingesting is not that. It's been bleached and re refined and bleached and deodorized. And if they are ingesting it, they're ingesting it in junk food because that's that's what it's used for. Um, so sustainable, I mean, in, in West Africa, they, they don't grow it. I mean, they, there are some places now that are plantations, but over generations, it's it's been grown in sort of agroecology schemes. So there's there's other things growing at sort of ground level, and then you've got these trees, and you're harvesting all these different things and using the palm oil in its in its natural form. So yeah, that's sustainable, and and I mean it is it is 50% saturated fat, but you are getting these these vitamins, vitamin A and E. Um, so in that sense, I think, yes, it's, it's sustainable and, and can be used in a healthy diet. But the industrialized stuff that's, that's mainly coming out of um, Indonesia and Malaysia these days, uh, neither sustainable nor healthful. 
And you point out that in parts of rural Liberia, as in Cameroon, Nigeria, and across the oil palm belt, achieving that unrefined form of palm oil involves pretty much the same procedure it would have involved centuries ago. It begins with a guy. This part is still always done by a guy. Scaling one of the skinny trunks to reach the ripe bunches at the top, using a sling crafted from local vines, one section stretching around his body and the other lassoed to the tree. He leans back, feet planted on the trunk, and sort of shimmies his way up with the trees reaching as high as 90 feet. Falls can be fatal. Using a machete, he then hacks at the desired bunch until it goes hurtling to the ground. Can this work be automated? Are palm farms good for locals because they do provide employment? Um, the, so far, they haven't found a way to automate it. Um, so they use the, the the harvesters use these long poles now to sort of bonk those those um, bunches out out from the tree. Um, and so no, they haven't found a way to automate it. What they've done instead is basically, you know, enlisted um, armies of workers for, and paying them a pittance, and so as to to keep their um, their profits at the top. And we could talk about sort of labor issues if you like. Yeah, and I just want to I just want to. Uh complete this idea about community and how this changes their identity because you write it's at this point that the women get involved uh, sweating the fruits under a mat to loosen them from the spiky husks and then boiling them in metal drums to soften the fruit and slow the development of free fatty acids which leads to rancidity the uh, steamed fruit then gets dumped into a vat to be stomped on old world winemaker style or to a mill whether human animal or machine powered for crushing you mentioned a person or a community losing its identity when palm oil concessions come in and grab land. Is this the new community and personal identity of those displaced by palm oil, being pickers and sweaters and processors of palm oil fruits instead of smallholder farming? Is this the new community and identity that they have? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking more so that the industry I mentioned, Indonesia and Malaysia, around the turn of the century, um, European planters started taking the, the oil palm fruit, which again is native to Central and West Africa. And this, what you're describing there is the process for, um, for, for making palm oil in those places. And around the turn of the century, um, European Scandinavian planters started bringing the oil palm fruit to um, Southeast Asia, to what was then Malaya and Dutch East Indies and started growing there, particularly after um, synthetic rubber came online, there was a big rubber slump. So they had been growing a lot of rubber there um, and those prices fell. So they pulled out the rubber and started planting a lot more oil palm. Um, so in those places, the, I mean, the culture um, is, is, being, is being lost because the, the forest is being cut down and plantations are being established. Um, in Africa, as I said, I think you know a, lo a lot of that culture is still intact in communities that are growing palm oil the way the way that they always have. But there there are some plantations there. I described the ones in Liberia. There are similar there are plantations in Sierra Leone, in Cameroon, in um, Democratic Republic of Congo, where similarly, yes, people are saying we've been pushed off our land and and we're losing our culture because we're losing our forests. And you point out that the state of labor acts across the uh, palm oil economy from smuggled migrant workers stripped of their passports and their humanity in Malaysia to child laborers in Indonesia and women exposed to sexual abuse and dangerous chemicals across three continents. Why is palm oil production such a site globally of worker exploitation, including low wages, few benefits and dangerous work conditions? Or are there such things as 
well-paid and well-compensated palm workers somewhere else that we just don't know about? Um, there are very few of them. Um, there are a couple sort of boutique operations. There's one in Ecuador that I visited actually called Natural Habitats. Um, and that's smallholder farmers. They're basically growing oil palm in, um, in agroecological systems. They're growing other things too and feeding into this. They're growing it organically. Um, and so they had nice operations. They seem to have nice healthcare. There was a nice, cl nice clinic, nice schools. But it's a tiny operation. Um, there's also, I know there's some organic, I think it's a co-op in Ghana that um, grows palm oil that, go, that Dr. Bronner's soap company buys. So there are certainly instances, but they tend to be these little boutique -y things that are feeding into a, a, um, you know, a very specific um, sort of high-end market where, where they can pay a premium. But the lion's share of palm oil laborers, no, are working under horrific conditions. Um, so in Malaysia in particular, um, so Malaysia has a much, a much smaller population and a much higher standard of living than Indonesia. As I said, these are the two main, um, to get, together they now produce about 85% of the world's palm oil. So Malaysia, um, because there aren't a lot of Malaysians who are um, inclined to work sort of garbage jobs um, on plantations, they have to import. Um, they, they bring in about, uh, I think, 375,000, um, 337,000 migrant workers from countries like Indonesia, India, and Bangladesh um, to harvest the palm fruit. And um, often this has involved um, forced labor, sort of they're brought in under false pretenses. Recruiters will go to their villages in these places and say, oh, I can get you a job in a restaurant or a hotel. Um, they put them on boats in, under horrific conditions, um, barely enough food and water just to, to keep them alive, bring them into camps, and then traffic them into uh, Malaysia, where often their passports are confiscated, and yet they're just they're kept in these little shacks or, um, you know, sort of trailers where where they are just living at the, at the bare level of existence given you know maybe a little rice every day not a lot of water um not allowed to leave the plantations um so one sort of bright spot um there there have been people documenting these abuses and we can talk about child labor which is more common in indonesia um but last year the u.s government did announce that it was going to start blocking shipments of palm oil from two um major malaysian producers over these these very credible allegations of forced labor um, including concerns over child workers in some places and um, physical and sexual abuse. But it's still ongoing, but at least the, the U.S. government has stepped up and said, you know, we, we've got evidence that this is going on. And so we're, we're not, um, we're blocking imports from these two big producers until you can show us that things have changed. So are these abuses, are they necessary to make a profit? Are, are profits and margins so thin that the only way that these corporations, and you list some of them, like Cargill, Wilmar, Sinarmas, Salkfin, you mentioned how uh, they make a whole bunch of money off of this. Are, are, these, are these profits, are these abuses necessary to make that kind of profit that they demand? They're really not. There was actually a report came out in June, June of this year by an organization called Chain Reaction Research um, that tracks um, sort of commodities and deforestation linked to them and other um, environmental abuses. Um, and they found that the, the, you know, 
in this massive industry, most of the profits are staying at the top there with um, fast moving consumer goods and um, and these plantation companies and that smallholders. So these people that are actually farming the oil palm generate $17 billion, um, which is 6% of the entire um, supply chain. And yet their share in profits is close to zero. So that the average um, smallholder farmer, and when the industry talks about, oh, you can't say anything bad about palm oil because you know, you, you're putting down these smallholder farmers that, you know, or this is, this is their livelihood. Um, the truth is that the smallholders make an average of $7,500 a year and their average household is um, 4.3 people. So they're living right at the poverty line. And, you know, the, uh, 2018 report um, by this Indonesian organization called Tuck Indonesia, which tracks um, uh, corruption in the industry, found that the estimated total wealth of the top 27 families in the palm oil industry was more than $88 billion, or 8% of the country's gross domestic product. So so all those profits are, um, are staying at the top. There's very little that is trickling down. So to answer your question, no, these abuses aren't necessary, but they've, they've as as of now, they've gotten away with them. Um, part of it I talk about in the book is these places are super remote. Like in Liberia, I, I had flown into the capital and then I had to drive eight hours on just, you know, garbage dirt roads with you know, horrible potholes and little lakes <laughs> that we had to drive through. Um, same thing in Sumatra. I just, you know, I had to drive miles and miles to get to these plantations, which again, go on for miles and miles. You can just get lost in them and you know, they're just way far out in these rural areas. And um, so few people are, are paying attention. Um, and there is an organization called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil that was established in 2004 um, when environmental organizations sort of started calling out the industry for environmental abuses and labor abuses. So this organization was founded and it's, you know, it will give this certification, but there have been reports showing that this organization itself um, is corrupt and not very effective. And that when, that, so they have, they send auditors out to, to look at these plantations, to monitor them. And the, the, there have been studies done that show that the, um, and I've, and I spoke with people on plantations who participated in these, when these monitors came and they said, Oh, our, our employer said, um, you know, this is what you need to say. You need to talk about how great the working conditions are here. And that afterward, um, well, one said, you know, my manager was standing right next to me when I was being interviewed. So, of course, I couldn't say anything honest or I would have been punished or fired. And that the ones who do um, read the script properly are rewarded afterward. Um, and they've also found that um, workers on the plantations, if there are... Um, I mentioned child labor, we didn't, haven't really talked about it, but often people will bring their families, will bring their kids to the plantation because they work on a quota system. They have to sort of gather this much fruit in order to get their pay at the end of the day. And if the, the father can't do it on his own, usually the man who's got the actual contract, um, he might bring his wife and kids along to help gather fruit in order to make this quota. And so when these RSPO um, monitors are coming, these, they call them casual workers because they don't actually get paid for anything. They're told to sort of go hide in these far off areas so that the, um, the monitors won't see them and know that that's going on on the plantation. Is this corruption, do you think this is unique to the oil palm industry or do you think this is the kind of corruption that happens in all extractive industries? 
I, I don't think it's unique to the palm oil industry. I mean, we know we've seen the same thing in the cocoa industry, the rubber industry. I do think um, that it tends to be worse with these tropical crops. Um, again, because they're, they're, you know, in this band of the planet that tends to be, they tend to have been um, colonized countries. And so there's sort of still a legacy of, um, you know, getting their, their governance together. There might, there's maybe a lot of corruption and there's a lot of poverty. So, um, which is sort of a breeding ground for corruption. But no, it's certainly not, certainly not unique to palm oil, but um, it's really bad in the palm oil industry. And you write today with everything once considered normal now gone out the window, we have a unique opportunity to rethink business as usual and chart the way toward a more sustainable future, one that doesn't just limit the emergence of pandemics, but also promotes more equitable societies and heads off the worst that climate change has in store. How can cutting palm oil production and the deforestation that goes along with it make societies more equitable? Well, you know, I, I kind of feel I'm, I'm tend not to be a really optimistic person. And you can see this book isn't, isn't full of hope, but um, I think between the pandemic and between, you know, the fires and the floods um, that people are finally being sort of shaken awake as to how all this stuff is connected um, and the black lives matter um, protests. And so, you know, there's a big, um, there's a big biodiversity conference coming up in China in October. So we didn't, you mentioned viruses in your intro, but the other thing with, with palm oil and uh, with all tropical crops is, you know, if you, it's the lion's share of, of pandemics of these um, emerging infectious diseases, these zoo, um, ones that are passed from animals to humans happen because of tropical deforestation. So I think um, there's there's much more of a focus on that. So there's this, and, and you're losing your biodiversity because so much of plant and animal species um, make their home in the tropical rainforest. So I think with this biodiversity conference and the climate change conference in Glasgow in November, there's also a big, first time ever, a big um, food systems conference happening at the United Nations in September. Um, and I mean, some, some have um, argued that this food systems conference is, is sort of baloney because it's um, being headed up by the UN and people involved with the World Economic Forum that it's been sort of captured by, um, um, by industry. But there are a lot of their indigenous organizations, um, smallholder farmer organizations across the world that are saying, you know, we need to have a place in this and went in this rethinking of, you know, we've got this finite amount of land, how are we going to use it? All of this stuff needs to be in the conversation. So not just, you know, how do how do we grow foods that are nutritious and that don't screw us um, environmentally, but also how do how do smallholder farmers make a decent living? And again, there more and more there are um, there's a conversation around and actual initiatives being put in place, whereby not just rich countries, but the countries um, that are most responsible change wise. Um, pay to help the, the governments of the countries um, steward these these tropical rainforests and, and the biodiversity. Um, so I don't know, at least I, I think the conversation is is really opening up in a way that could, I mean, it's, it's, it's this or perish, right? We've got one chance now to get it right. And I think, um, I don't know, I'm a little bit hopeful that that in rethinking how we save this planet, the all of these other questions can come into play. 
It has an impact on biodiversity. It has an impact on releasing viruses that can lead to a pandemic. It has an impact on deforestation. It has an impact on climate change. You write or you remind us that in 2015, an extended episode of haze linked to fires on oil palm plantations in Indonesia led to an estimated 100,000 premature deaths. A few weeks into the crisis, government officials ordered the evacuation of all babies under the age of six months. As yet untallied is the uh, long-term health damage caused by these conflagrations. Was that an anomaly, or will we see more of that kind of burning that causes premature deaths again in the future as long as palm oil production continues to expand? So, um, Every few years, particularly in El Nino years, they, they do set fires to the, well, they f- set fires every year. Some smallholder farmers do, but in these El Nino years, um, they can be a, a huge problem. And it happened again in 2019 when, um, according to Indonesia's environmental ministry, fires burned an area larger than the state of Rhode Island. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an ongoing problem. And, um, Part, part of what's also really problematic is that a lot of these fires happen on peatlands. Peat is this sort of um, muddy substance that's that's formed over um, millennia and it's just like a, it just it's basically coal in the making so it's just massive um, amounts of carbon packed down into the soil. And Indonesia, unfortunately, um, the world's biggest palm oil producer is also home to the the biggest um, peatlands. And so what the companies do is they they, drain these areas and then set fire to them so in order to clean off the land and plant oil palm. So when you but when you set fire to these peatlands, it's just it's like a carbon bomb going off. So it's like the worst thing you can possibly do on the um, climate change front. So that's another another thing that um, you know more and more NGOs and the UN and other governments are recognizing that we need to we need to protect these peatlands. There's also a massive peat deposit in, um, it crosses over the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the, these are poor people living there looking for land to farm. They're going to, they're going to set fire to it. So we need to, to pay those governments to, to help put in place, um, regulations, protective organizations, um, in order to keep that peat in, in the ground, because in the ground, because truly if, if all that peat is escapes, we're, we're screwed. That's it. Game over. And you mentioned these zero deforestation commitments that have been made by governments uh, and otherwise pledged to protect the environment. You then, quote, learn while traveling undercover in Sumatra that fruit grown illegally on peatlands and other protected areas routinely makes its way to their mills and ultimately to our own kitchens, bathrooms and fuel tanks. How difficult was it to find this illegal growing of palm oil trees on uh, peatlands that emit climate change causing CO2? How much was this a secret and how much was it an open secret? It's an open secret, pretty much. Sadly, it was it was not difficult at all. I mean, part of it was I was undercover with these guys, this organization um, Eyes on the Forest. So these are Indonesian guys who've been tracking this stuff for years. So they sort of, they know the areas where, you know, there's there's a national park or there's, um, so after these fires that you mentioned, the Indonesian government put in place a moratorium saying you can't, you can't um, clear or burn or plant on peatlands. Um, but this is part of what they're tracking because everybody does it anyway. There's there's lots of little loopholes. They, they mapped these, they did a big project to map all these peatlands um, and then, 
over the years, what do you know? The, the map started changing. So again, it's, it involves a lot of corruption at the local level. So plantations paying off government officials to sort of redraw the boundaries. So, oh, maybe you can just bring it in a little bit more. Um, so that's that's one part of the corruption. And then the other thing, as I said, is people will just sort of plant, you know, in the corner of a national park. And the, I mean, the, the system put in place is that companies say, we've traced our, our palm oil supply to the mill. Um, and the idea being that so the palm oil fruit is pretty perishable. It needs to be processed within 24 hours um, and, or it will start to sort of degrade and go rancid. Um, so the idea is if you trace it to the mill, then presumably the, the palm oil must have been sourced from a certain geographic radius. Um, but again, they sort of, they will race through the night, you know, they'll, they'll source it from outside this geographic radius, race through the night, um, sometimes change license plates along the way so that you know nobody can trace where this fruit originally came from and then they get to the mills and then the guys I was with showed me video of like uh, a tr trucker um, showing up at the mill and sort of passing a wad of cash to the the guy accepting the the fruit supply and basically not asking any questions about where it might have come from and you know on what land it might have been grown so there's there's lots of uh, loopholes and sort of games being played that um, evade those um, those moratoria. And you also point out an open access platform called Trace, T-R-A-S-E, launched in 2016 by the Stockholm Environment Institute and the British NGO Global Canopy, tracks the production and trade of commodities, including palm oil, that are linked to tropical rainforests, enabling companies, governments, and individuals to identify potential environmental or societal risks along the way. So how difficult does that make it for palm oil from deforested areas to get into the palm, the you know global palm oil market? Does that decrease the likelihood that we we may be consuming deforested palm oil. I think it's decreased it some. I think part of the problem is, you know, there, there needs to be more people who are actually looking at it. I mean, some of these, they might do a report that finds it, but then it, it goes into the um, some black hole. And unless consumers are sort of aware that this report was found that showed that PepsiCo was, you know, sourcing its palm oil from peatlands or from a national park and, you know, get on Twitter or get online on the PepsiCo website and say, we're not going to stand for this, then I think they just keep getting away with it because, because people don't know. But I do, I do think these technologies um, certainly can help. And I think, you know, the, the combination of, of drones and satellite technologies that can track this stuff and then um, social media, you know, if, if uh, an organization sort of sees that a company is deforesting in an area where they're not supposed to be and then they, they post this report and they've got enough say followers on Twitter and people start amplifying that and it gets to shareholders who realize their their investments are going to be screwed then I think things can start to change um, again we need to we need to care and we need to sort of let them know that we care setting aside the shortcomings of consumer consumer activism just for a moment to what extent could consumers, if they chose, boycott palm oil products? How difficult would it be and how inconvenient would life be without palm oil? Um, I mean, if you don't eat a lot of processed foods, you're, you're going to be in pretty good shape because, as I said, it's 75% of it goes to processed foods. Then there's some that goes to sort of oleochemical companies, um, biofuels increasingly, there is about 7% of global supply that goes into um, personal care products and makeup and things. So that's going to be hard to um, avoid. And 
part of the other problem is there's something like 200 different names that palm oil can turn up with on a label. So as I said, it gets, there's the palm kernel oil and the palm oil, and then it gets fractionated through separated into solid parts and liquid parts. And then it gets processed from there into all these different things. So you might look on a label and it says PKO and you don't, wouldn't know that that stands for palm kernel oil, or it could say vitamin A palpitate or I'm sorry, palmitate, um, stearic acid, palmitic acid, sodium lauryl sulfate. Those are all sort of palm oil in disguise. So uh, it's really hard unless you're, you know, unless you're putting a lot of effort into reading labels and, and sussing out what, which of those things are actually palm oil. Um, but as I said, I think that the main thing is avoiding processed foods. If you do that, you're going you're gonna to avoid it um, to a large extent. And you're right that today palm oil stands center stage in what the Lancet has termed the global syndemic, the combined 21st century crises of obesity, malnutrition, and climate change. What impact, if any, has the crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic had on the global syndemic of obesity, malnutrition, and climate change? Did we get a break just like uh, the environment got a break with fewer CO2 emissions during the pandemic, at least the first uh, 18 months of it so far? Um, no, certainly not on the on the malnutrition side of it. I know that the UN just came out a couple of weeks ago with a report saying that world hunger is sort of the worst than it's been in, I don't know, decades. Um, part of it because of, of COVID, people not being able to go to work and, um, you know, supply change knockdowns. So certainly not on that side. Um, I don't know about the, on the obesity side. I mean, that would be hard to track, I guess, until, you know, farther out into the future but again I, I you know maybe the break we get is that that people are starting to pay attention and to connect some dots about how all these things are connected and that as i said we're all really screwed if we don't get our act together really soon but you do mention an alternative you mentioned meeting tom kelleher and tom jeffries who earned their phds at rutgers in the 1970s and met soon after at a gathering of microbiologists. Jeffries is a former national president of the Society for Industrial Microbiology and Biotechnology, who went on to enjoy a logging career at the U.S. Departments of Energy and Agriculture, where he worked on the development of cellulosic fuels. Kelleher spent decades in the biopharmaceuticals industry, retiring in 2014. A few years ago, Kelleher signed on as CEO of Xylome, the company that Jeffries founded in 2007 with a plan to manipulate the genetic pathways of different yeasts so as to create sustainable products. Having uh, sequenced the genome of his preferred bug, Jeffries worked with his team over three years to duplicate and rearrange its genes, finishing with a yeast that is capable of producing copious amounts of oil. Today, Xylome uses a fermentation process similar to that for brewing beer with the engineered yeast metabolizing uh, raw materials to produce oils with chemical profiles nearly identical to those of palm oil and palm kernel oil. The company has patented its effective strains and filed to be uh, certified GRAS or generally regarded as safe by the U.S. FDA. So is a genetically modified yeast going to save us from palm oil's destructive capacity so we can keep consuming all we want? Uh, could well do. I mean, I, I rubbed some of that into into my hand. Tom Kelleher's daughter also is using it to, to start to make personal care products like um, body lotions and things and makeups. And um, yeah, it felt like it felt like um, refined bleach deodorized um, palm oil. Um, and they're not the only ones. There's a, there's a um, company based in New York called C16 Biosciences that last year got um, 20 million bucks from Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is the um, 
the company started by Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and a bunch of others to sort of um, look at alternative energies, you know, in the in the hope of heading off climate change. Um, there's also some folks at the University of Bath, I believe it is. It's it's at in Bath in England um, that are working on um, making a synthetic palm oil also from yeast. So. Um, there, there are lots of folks who are looking at that, you know, recognize the, the problem with the palm oil industry as is. So, um, you know, it's probably a, a, a ways off scaling that up, but the, the technology seems to be in, in pretty good shape. So now I think it's just a, yeah, a matter of, um, I mean, that's a lot of, a lot of palm oil to replace, but um, little by little, if you could start reclaiming that land and, and planting it with, you know, stuff that sequesters carbon and, is nutritious food. I think that's the, that's the way we ultimately get there. You state that a rethinking of the capitalist system that generates all that waste as palm oil does may be in the offing. And then you mention all of these uh, people from the era of colonialism, the earlier era of colonialism, uh, their statues being torn down throughout England. You write how uh, Carl Rhodes, uh, or Cecil Rhodes, sorry, his uh, statue was torn down, how uh, Edward Colston was torn down, a slave trader by the name of uh, Edward Colston, his statue was being torn down. And you write that as the summer of 2020 lurches on with statues connected to racial and economic injustice continuing to fall in cities around the world, many of us are realizing perhaps for the first time just how loudly history's drumbeats reverberates. Were last summer's protests in the end uprisings against history, were they protests against the legacy of what had been done? And if so, what caused so many to finally come to that realization of our brutal history um i mean so when i when i mentioned that history the reason is we didn't talk about some of the guys um involved in the early palm oil industry so there was this man william lever um a british guy originally from bristol who started producing um so started making soap and he was using palm oil sourced from west africa to make the soap and at a certain point he wanted to get his uh, get his hands on his own supply he wanted to sort of cut out the middlemen just to, to increase his profits also um he was a racist and he thought oh those those local producers aren't doing it well enough i'm going to go down there and teach them how to do it um anyway so his name was william lieber and he went on to found the company that is now Unilever, which is still the biggest buyer of palm oil um, in the world, consumer company. Um, anyway, so when you're talking about those statues falling, one of them that um, they were talking about sort of renaming some things that had Lever's name in them because they recognized his, oh, so I didn't, I didn't explain. He went into what was in the Belgian Congo and basically um, used forced labor in order to produce his palm oil um, from which he got very, very rich. Um, and we all know Unilever is a, is a behemoth still today. So anyway, um, I guess the question was the, the protests. I mean, I, I guess it was, it was George Floyd that, that sparked them, but I think it did, I think just opened a lot of eyes to, you know, the, the extent to which I think a lot of people who thought, you know, oh yeah, I know about racism. I know about sort of historic, you know, the legacies of, of slavery. Um, I think, I think a lot of us hadn't, hadn't read deeply enough, looked deeply enough um, to those legacies and how they're still so present in um, in the systems in which we all live today. So I, I do think, um, you know, we're all continuing to learn uh, what um, about our privilege and about, you know, the lack of privilege elsewhere and, and how we go about writing some of that stuff. 
I got one last question for you, Jocelyn. We've been speaking with environmental writer and editor Jocelyn C. Zuckerman, author of Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. You can find out more about Jocelyn by going to Jocelyn. Uh, czuckerman.com and you can follow Jocelyn on Twitter at Jocelyn Zuck. One last question for you, Jocelyn, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You mentioned Breakthrough Energy Ventures, the multi-billion dollar fund established by Bill Gates and others to support innovations that combat climate change. Recently invested $20 million in C16 Biosciences, a New York City-based startup with a plan similar to Xylomes for brewing synthetic oil, and how Xylomes, Jeffries, and Kelleher, uh, meanwhile, were working to get the price of their food-grade biosimilar below that of the plantation-grown variety of palm oil and had been in discussions with Colgate, Palmolive, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, PepsiCo, and General Mills, among others, about potential partnerships. How much is the future of palm oil and therefore the future of deforestation, threats to biodiversity, uh, contributions to climate change, and potential ways in which viruses can turn into pandemic how much of all of that is in the hands of Bill Gates, Colgate, Palmolive, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, PepsiCo, and General Mills? Uh, a whole lot of it, I think. But um, as, as I said before, I do think uh, the people have the power. We just need to get out there and you know, raise our voices, tell them that, that we care. We've already seen, we've already seen a lot of changes um, you know, just, just by people getting out in the streets. So um, luckily in this country, we can, we can still do it mostly anyway, without being um, mowed down with bullets. So, uh, you know, now's the time. As I said, it's it's like really crunch time given this climate situation. So um, how's that? That's a very good answer to a question, Phil. <laughs> Jocelyn, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, the name of the book is Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks a lot. This was fun. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell, as I mentioned earlier. We got a couple of emails from listeners somehow involved with Maine. We received a topic and guest suggestion from Brian in Bangor, Maine. Brian writes, Dear Chuck, I hope you are well. I've been listening to This Is Hell for a couple of years now. Though I don't remember what episode it was that got me hooked, a friend from graduate school sent me an episode, and since then I listened to it at least twice every week. I always enjoy the content, the commentary, the questions from hell, and even those questions and answers I hate. Anyways, I am mostly writing to see if you plan to cover homelessness in the near future. Maybe you have, and I just missed it. I'm currently focusing my research on homelessness because of our housing crisis and the response to homelessness here in Bangor, Maine, where even the most bleeding-heart liberals can only do so much for the homeless. Yes, that is an actual, almost exact quote by a bleeding heart liberal city councilor. There is also all that has gone on in California and then in Austin, Texas, where there were some wins at the policy level for homelessness, followed by right wing, including liberals, I'm sure reactionary pushback. Here's three books that a student of mine and I have been reading over the last month that may be of interest to you and your audience. Uh, the first one is by Vincent Lyon Callow, called Inequality, Poverty, and Neoliberal Governance, Activist Ethnography in the Homeless Sheltering Industry. Craig Wilson's The Value of Homelessness, Managing Surplus Life in the United States. 
and Don Mitchell's Mean Streets, Homelessness, Public Space, and the Limits of Capital. There are, of course, those directly on the ground who you could speak with in Austin and California, Brian writes, and you may have already been looking for people. I just wanted to reach out with these recommendations as they have been really good books to get me into and thinking about the ideas and ways in which we discuss homelessness, the homeless, and why we live in a capitalist hellhole where homelessness is a necessity for capitalism to exist. Thanks for what you do and continuing to draw attention to the endless, inescapable hellhole that we live in. Take care. Brian Bangor, Maine. Brian, we have not discussed homelessness enough. In fact, I would say that we have neglected covering it at all. Homelessness is a topic that we do need to discuss, and thank you for the suggestion. Listeners, if you have additional suggestions when it comes to guest ideas related to homelessness, especially those who are working on the front lines, please send them in because we need to be covering homelessness as it is not a topic you hear discussed enough, not only in the media, but more generally here on This Is Hell. Coincidentally. We got another email related to Maine. Dan writes, Michael is a friend of mine, so I'm hardly objective, but he just wrote the crowning achievement of his academic career about paperworks in Maine and the slow shift from a paternalist model to an investor-owned model. That's paperwork as in a paper mill. I think it has implications for the larger industrial world. Here is his contact info if you're interested. Dan then sends a link to the Cornell University Press book, Shredding Paper, The Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry. Ultimately, it says the author offers a telling example of the demise of big industry in the United States, that author being Michael G. Hilliard. The book shows a retelling of labor relations and worker experiences from the late 19th century up until the 1990s. And Hilliard highlights how national conglomerates began absorbing family-owned companies over time, which were subjected to Wall Street demands for greater short-term profits after 1980. This new political economy impacted the economy of the entire state and destroyed Maine's once-vaunted paper industry. So thanks for the suggestion, Dan. We definitely have not discussed the demise of Maine's paper industry or how it pertains to industrial decline more generally. So we will look into both Brian's and Dan's suggestions. And if we have their suggested guests on the air, or if you suggest a guest we later have on the show, we will thank you on air as well. Egon, can you please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from Helen? Please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Well, Chuck, uh, this week's question from Hell is, what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? And uh, we've got quite a few answers that have come in. Um, Laddie O says, somehow tribbles. (laughs) Gotta love that. Uh, Kim G suggests the thawing of the cryogenically frozen. Oh, sweet. That'll be good. Ted Williams. Can't wait to hear his, uh, see, finally see him play baseball again. Finally. We've all been, I mean, I know we've all been waiting for this forever. Yes. So good news on the horizon, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, Austin R says the digital obsolescence, the digital obsolescence of this is hell's all too recently completed archive project. A very optimistic Austin, I must say. Uh, and the moral ethical implications of training an AI on five decades of this is hell to create a cyber chuck so that this may be hell in perpetuity. Uh, like perpetuity. that. Like that. That'd be like that Anthony Bourdain documentary they have where they digitally made him read an email that he never read in his life, and it's really creeping people out. 
I mean, just think about it, Chuck. You'll you'll always get to be on vacation. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> uh, let's see. What are we going to be talking about uh, on the show in our 50th anniversary in 2046? Mar G suggests God Emperor of Dune, Jeff Dorchin. <laughs> okay. Quite likely. Uh, Dan K writes, how to get coffee stains out of your gills. <laughs> nice. Uh, we've got Bruce B who wrote in, and I like this one a lot, the war for Antarctica. <laughs> Unfortunately, probably very, very likely. And uh, let's see here. Uh, what will we be talking about at our 50th anniversary in 2046 on the show? Chris S. writes in that says, the decline in quality of our bioport attachments and how we're always getting yeast infections in the insertion point in the back of our skulls these days. Oh, that's just gross. <laughs> oh, I can't leave you with that one. Um, <laughs> you got to read one more. <laughs> yeah. Sean M. says, the U.S. has declared that it will pull out of its last contracted Tesla drone bombers out of Afghanistan by the end of next year. Will Elon Musk return to Earth to fight the decision? <laughs> Is that it? Oh, I'll give you one more. Okay. Stephen M. says, the good old days of 2020. <laughs> we will be hosting our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, all day Saturday, September 18th, featuring live music and art opening in a raffle of This Is Hell-related or inspired prizes. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act you would like to see perform or you are an artist or would like to re recommend an artist for the art opening, email us at chuckatthisishell.com and maybe you or your suggestion suggestion will be performing music or displaying art. That's the 25th anniversary This Is Hell listener appreciation party and art show This Is Art happening on Saturday, September 18th. Send your suggestions for musical acts to perform or artists to show their work as soon as possible to chuck at thisishell.com. Yes, our actual anniversary of airing on WNUR was last week, but we had to reschedule the party due to the ongoing pandemic, so it's now happening on Saturday, September 18th, all day at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, also known as Little India. That's 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Egon, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we have Jorge Mafud. hopefully I'm pronouncing his last name right, uh, who will be talking about his op-ed, Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny that he wrote for Common Dreams. And as we are celebrating 25 years on air, more and more listeners are remembering how they first found out about This Is Hell, so we will be sharing more of your memories tomorrow. And who's on Thursday show? Thursday we have Avi Garlic on his Hypocrite Reader article, The Violence is the Point. And, of course, we will be having another moment of truth with... Oh, no, we are not having a moment of truth. I just heard right before today's show, Jeff is not doing a moment of truth on Thursday's show. I was going to say, I believe he's out on yes, Thursday. Yes, he is. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Shuley. Thanks to Jocelyn, our guest today, Jocelyn Zuckerman, who is the author of Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Find out more about... Jocelyn by going to JocelynCZuckerman.com and follow Jocelyn on Twitter at JocelynZuck. Thanks to Egon Sheely for producing. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for booking today's guests. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell.
my demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>